Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear fruit and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Father, we thank you for your word that is alive, sharper than a two-edged sword, May we fall more in love with your word, that we might fall more in love with the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we find out what you are like, your ways, your thoughts, as we renew our thoughts and our ways through the truth of Scripture. So like Samuel of old, we come like little children, and we ask you to show us what the word says. Thank you that you didn't abandon us when your son went to heaven, but just as he promised, he sent the Spirit of God to live in us. Thank you for his teaching ministry, the way he illumines truth and helps us to see it and understand wherever we are in our walk with Christ, be we new Christians or old Christians. Thank you for his ministry. And I ask for his ministry through me today, because without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So please come and fill me and anoint me and use this message to touch the hearts of your people who know you and love you, but also to reach those who have never come to genuine faith in Christ. May Jesus be honored, and this we ask in his holy name. Amen. Would you take the Bible, please, and turn to the 66th book in the Bible and the 6th chapter. That's easy to remember, 666, right? All right. We are in a study of the book of Revelation, verse by verse by verse. And as you find the 6th chapter, put your bulletin in there. Because I want to set the time frame and the context of where we are in our study of the Revelation. My desire is that by the time you are done with Revelation, you'll be able to think your way all the way through it. This is, I think, the 18th message I've given thus far in the Revelation. And if you will put your finger in the sixth chapter and turn to the first chapter so I can set the context for you. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 gives us the theme of the book of Revelation. It is very simply, he is coming with the clouds. That really runs all the way through this book, that Jesus is coming back. And God himself gave us the outline of Revelation, just like in the book of Acts, Jesus at his ascension gave the outline in terms of a prophecy for the first 30 years of church history. So we have an outline of the Revelation in Revelation 1.19. Therefore, Jesus said, write the things which you have seen, as this chart shows, that's the past. Write the things that are, are, that's chapters two and three. So he writes the things that he's seen, and he records this vision of this glorified Christ that he sees in heaven, write the things that are, and he writes of seven literal, actual, functioning churches 
that are alive and meeting in 95 AD. And then he says that you are to write the things after these things. What must take place after these things? That's the future. Those are the things that are yet to happen. So when you come to chapter 4, you begin the after these section. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse 1. The chapter opens, after these things open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Twice over in the verse, so you could not miss it. We are moving into the futuristic section of the Revelation. He's caught up. We call it the harpazo. We shall all be caught up in the Latin The translation gives us the word rapture. So when people tell you the rapture is not in the Bible, they are mistaken. It's in the Latin Bible. I don't care what you call it. But John is caught up into heaven. God has taken him up. And so the church is not mentioned again until the 19th chapter when the bride of Christ comes back with Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. We read here, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. We saw the number 24, we studied it from the Old Testament, is a representative number that God uses of a large mass of people. So it's not by accident that God signals out 24 elders. Now, by who the elders are or how people describe the elders will tell you how they understand the book of Revelation. There are preterists who say that the book of Revelation is already over and done with the exception of the second coming of Christ. There are historicists who say the book of Revelation is being fulfilled over the course of 2,000 years. But most understand this to be the futuristic section beginning in chapter 4. And these 24 elders are representative of the church. How did they get there? The door was open. They went there through the rapture. And so we studied that. Now, as we step into chapter 5, Jesus is described with two terms. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's called um, the Lamb that was slain. So the 24 elders are not Israel. The purpose of the tribulation is to bring Israel to Christ. The 24 elders are not angels. They're distinguished in this chapter and the next from the angels. They are the church, and here's the church in heaven looking at the Lamb, and they watch the Father hand the scroll to God the Son. And he's described as the Lamb slain in this verse, but he's also described as the Lamb standing. Why? Because he not only died, he was risen. He's ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Then as we step into chapter 6, we see Jesus taking this scroll and piece by piece by piece, he breaks the seals. We studied the significance of a seven-seal scroll. We looked at a number of passages. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. It's the title deed to the world. And so Jesus not only redeemed man, he redeemed the world. All of creation mourns and groans. What God intended for Adam to rule over, he lost and Satan secured. And so in the temptation, when Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, it was a very real offer. But Jesus is now going to reclaim all of the creation. And we see that through a series of uh, these seven seals. Now, the first four seals 
have been given a term called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's become virtually an idiom in our day, describe, describing any horrible tragedy that may come upon the earth. Well, these first four seals we have seen represent four riders on a white, red, black, and ashen horse. Four ghoulish, gruesome, ghastly riders who unleash a storm like the world has never, ever seen. Look at the first rider in verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come, I looked, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now we saw that there are over 30 names given for a one-world ruler. The most popular name is the one John gives in his first epistle called the Antichrist. We studied him in the prophet Daniel, that he is the prince that shall come. He will come as a man of peace. And so he's pictured here carrying a bow, but with no arrows, which implies he will conquer the world, but without bloodshed. He will provide answers that the world desperately is looking for. He comes on a white horse, just like the true Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus. The 19th chapter comes on a white horse. He's an imitator. He comes with a, a bow, but with no arrows. He is anti, and the word anti in Greek can mean against or instead of, and it's often used in the nuance instead of. He comes in the place of the true Prince of Peace, and most of the world will embrace him. Most of the world will welcome him. He will, I'm sure, have an explanation as to where all the millions of Christians who've been caught up into heaven are, and he will have an explanation on how to deal with the current problems in the world. Listen, I'm not an op, I'm not a pessimist. I am a biblicist. And I know what Jesus said that there's coming a generation where things will not get better, but things will get worse. That is a fact. That's what the Word of God teaches. And we need to prepare our minds for it. Jesus said these things must happen. So don't fear when they do happen. But with that said, this man comes on a white horse with answers. In fact, there's a few commentators who have been deceived by this rider. They think this is Jesus. This is not Jesus. He's the one opening the seals. If this were Jesus, then he's in bad company. Look at verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And now, this time, a second living creature. We studied these living creatures. I hope you remember them. They are the cherubim. And they're being used of God to execute his plan. Verse 4, and another a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And this is where the story really turns ugly all the way until the king of kings returns to establish his kingdom. The Antichrist comes. He offers peace. The world will think everything is okay. Finally, we have a solution to the problems in the Middle East and all the problems across the planet. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, while they are saying peace and safety, suddenly destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, whether the world knows it or not, they are preparing for a new world order. They are moving towards a one-world global government. And for a few moments in human history, when the white horse comes, they think they will have achieved it. 
But then the red horse comes, and another red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. It was granted. All of these horsemen are under the authority of a sovereign God. They can only do what God allows. And he's called a red horse. It's the word peros. There's a number of words for red in Koine Greek. But God chose this particular word red because it's the color of blood. It is the word that is used when you want to describe terror and death. It's the word that magnifies the dragon, the red dragon. It is the who is the devil. It's fiery red that describes the destruction that is going to come with this blood red horse. And the Bible says here he has a great sword. We saw the word sword was a symbol of death, but this is a great sword. He is going to take ectes geo. You know our word geo, geography. Ectes geis. He's going to take peace from the earth. There's going to be worldwide war. He is granted to take peace from the earth such that men will slay. And we saw the word slay is a word that is very specific. It describes butcher. Men will butcher one another. He will take peace from the earth and there will be a magnitude of war like the world has never seen. He who sat was permitted to take peace. Again, he is on a leash. He is under the sovereign hand of God. Can you imagine a world consumed by war? We've had two world wars, but they really weren't world wars in the truest sense. The fight didn't go to every country of the world. This will. This will take peace from the earth. Jesus said, nation will rise against nation. Nation is ethnoi. We get our word ethnicity from it. Kingdom against kingdom. That refers to different geopolitical countries. There'll be race wars. There'll be class wars. There'll be country wars, religious wars. Everywhere on the planet, there will be war. Add to that, there'll be no mothers, no fathers praying for their children because God's people will have been raptured off the earth and a host of unbelievers are left. And those who come to faith almost as soon as they believe, we will see they are martyred. There'll be no chaplains out in the foxholes trying to win people to Jesus because almost as fast as they are converted, they are martyred. This is a time of war without God, without Jesus, without hope. It's a terrible time. And we took and studied a glimpse of it from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. The third seal is broken and another rider appears. And so just to put it chronologically in your mind, as this next slide shows, you can see we are still on the first half of this seven-year period. This year, uh, this, this period of time is the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. There were 69 weeks we studied in Daniel. There's a space of time as God is building His church, and then the 70th week begins. And there's numerous prophecies like that in the Bible. A son is going to be born. A child will be given. That's His first coming. The governments will rest upon His shoulders. That's the second coming. And so we studied in Daniel a number of verses where in a single verse, or within two verses, you have both returns of Christ. The 70th week 
is a period of seven years that's divided into two halves. Both Daniel, Jesus, and the Apostle John describes the two halves as a time, times, and half a times, or three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. So these horsemen are still coming here in the first half of the great tribulation period. And this is a black horse. And we saw that the term black is a word for mourning. Most of us, even in this culture, understand that. When you go to a funeral, you don't usually dress up in white. Out of respect for those who have died, you usually put on dark clothing. That's what most people still do. But we looked at five specific Old Testament passages where in the Jewish mind, black was not just for mourning the dead, but mourning a loss of food. It was a color that was used for famine. And so this man comes on a black horse. But even if you didn't know that, you could figure that out from the context. We read in verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. It's not by accident that the black horse follows the red horse because invariably as night follows day, famine follows war. There will be severe shortages during this time frame. Food will need to be rationed. Now, we know little of that in our country. You can go into any grocery store and buy all the food you want. But following the red and the, the white and the red horses, famine will prevail upon the earth. Millions of people will suffer from malnutrition and hunger. And of course, with inadequate diet comes disease and despair and death. And we're told here that he has an old-fashioned pair of scales in his hand, and specifically a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. The word a quart or a measure, depending on your translation, is a, a mathematical term that describes enough wheat to make a single loaf of bread. Or with uh, a denarius, which represents in the first century a man's work for an entire day, he could, instead of buying a loaf of wheat, he can with his day's pay buy three quarts of barley. We saw that barley was used and illustrated for us in Scripture by the poor. It was very often fed to animals. But if you're really hungry, that's the food that you would eat if that's all you could have. So think about it. Here's an image of people, a man who works all day long. He has to feed his family on a single loaf of bread. If he's married and he has children, and we saw the average family size in the world is 5.6 children, or he has to take uh, his denarius and he has to buy three loaves fit for an animal. That's what it's like during this day. It's an awful time. It's measured out. Inflation has gone off the charts. Soaring prices are everywhere. The problem of hunger that we see in our world today will be dwarfed by what is going to happen. A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. We saw wheat and barley represent the necessities but at this time frame, the oil and the wine represent the luxuries. Only the rich will be able to have the oil and the wine. And again, it's a picture that Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse. He speaks of famine, but also when he t brought Peter, Andrew, James, and John up there on the Mount of Olivet, he also described that at the coming of Christ, many will be eating and drinking like they were in the days of Noah. 
So in some places of the world, there will be plentiful food. Maybe certain groups of people will have plentiful food because they are wealthy, but other places will suffer greatly. And so the white horse of deception comes. He's the Antichrist. There's the red horse of destruction. He represents war. There's the black horse of devastation. He represents famine. And then last time, if you were with us, and it's been a month since we've been here, so I'm reviewing. I hope you're listening. Mm -hmm. There's a pale horse of devastation. Verse 7, when the lamb broke the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And so now the lamb, the Lord Jesus, carefully breaks the fourth seal. He unrolls the scroll a little bit further, further, and one of his living creatures, one of his cherubim, who we've already met and we're going to continually meet in the Revelation several more times, he gives the command. I looked, verse 8, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Now, the word ashen is the Greek word chloros. We have a bleach company in America that's named after this particular word, chlorox. Um, chlor, uh, chlor, chlorine gas is kind of a pale gray gas. And so some translations render this a pale green. In either case, if you want to get a picture of what the color is like, go to a funeral home when your loved one is dead and before they dress them all up and put the makeup on them, that's what this color really represents. And so this fourth horse is death itself. And so God appropriately names a rider death. Um, what a chain reaction we have been seeing here. The first seal brings the white horse. The Antichrist comes. The second seal brings the red horse. War comes. The third uh, seal brings the black horse. Famine comes. Now this ashen horse and death begins to spread. Death and, notice, Hades was following him. And so we looked at all the terms in the Bible used to describe the places of the saved and the lost. And one of the Old Testament terms is Sheol that had two compartments, righteous Sheol, where a believer went, that Jesus emptied out at the ascension, and unrighteous Sheol, the Greek word for Sheol is Hades. And so unrighteous Sheol continues to exist. So when a lost man dies today, he goes to Hades. And someday Hades will be poured into the lake of fire, Gehenna, hell, the final resting place of all the lost. Authority was given to him. Again, he's on a leash. He can only do what God allows. Authority was given to them, meaning death and Hades are under the control of a sovereign God. But here's the point, and you don't want to miss it. You cannot hide from death. You cannot escape death. You cannot crawl up into a hole and cover yourself with dirt and think that you are going to somehow miss the judgment of God Almighty. God alone, by nature, is eternal. But when God made you, He made you to live forever. He made you in His image, and you will live forever either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Heaven is forever, so is hell. It's endless, measureless, dateless. It is forever and ever, on and on and on and on. And when a man has been there 10 million years, he will not have one less second to spend. 
And so he is describing the turmoil that is happening. Authority was given to him. And of course, it says here, a fourth of the earth is killed through this rider. To put this in modern terms, if this were to happen in this time frame in human history, there are 7.5 billion people upon the earth, approximately. That means 1,875,000,000 people will die during this time. And death comes by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Listen, people spiritualize Revelation. They say, well, this is history and it's already happened. There has never, ever been a time in the history of the world where any plague, famine, or war took one-fourth of the earth's population. But this rider will do that. Now, what a harvest it will be for the devil. And I'm sure he'll be laughing all the way into the bank until he is thrown in the lake of fire. Now, that's the context. Let's pick up where we left off. Are you with me? Say amen. All right. Verse 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe grapes when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, in this portion of Scripture, we find two opposite worlds, which you can see on your note-taking outline is the title of this morning's message. John describes one world of God's saints who are in heaven, but a second world of sinners who are upon the earth. So let's first deal with the world of the tribulation saints who are in heaven. And he underscores three truths about God's saints who are in heaven. First, he describes the cost of their testimony. Notice, if you will, now verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who'd been slain, because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Suddenly the vision changes as the lamb breaks the fifth seal. The four horsemen have ridden past John, and now the fifth seal is broke. And he sees underneath the altar the souls of those who've been slain. He reveals this group of people who have been martyred for their faith. Now, in spite of all the resistance that we're going to read about during this seven-year period of people who refuse to believe, God will still have people, a number that no one can count, who will come to genuine faith. That's one of the functions of the tribulation. 
One is to bring Israel to faith, but also to bring Gentile nations from every tribe, tongue, and people. For instance, of the Jew, John uh, Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 30, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. That's how the Jew refers to this time frame. We call it the Great Tribulation. They call it the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved from it. When we come to the seventh chapter next time, we will see 144,000 Jewish men who are converted to Christ, and they will preach the gospel to millions. Can you imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls preaching the gospel during this time, and a great multitude that no one can count comes to believe on the Lord Jesus. And because they refuse to give allegiance to the Antichrist, to take the mark of the beast, they will be martyred, and the methodology is by beheading. We are seeing this methodology enacted even in our day. People thought that was archaic and it would never return. It is going to return like the world has never seen it. And John says he saw underneath the altar the souls of those who've been slain. Now, we have noted that many of the idioms and symbols in Revelation are interpreted within Revelation itself. But 300 of the 404 verses in the Revelation are from the Old Testament. And not a single one is introduced, like David said or Isaiah said. Or, And so you have to have some handle on the Old Testament to understand the Revelation because 75% of the book references the Old Testament. So he speaks here of these saints being underneath the altar. And underneath is a word that does not refer in reference to space like they're all huddled under some altar but in terms of relationship. And so we're going to study that there's a temple in heaven. Moses, when uh, Cecil D. DeMille had uh, Charlton Heston come down the mountain with a set of Ten Commandments, he should have also had him carrying a set of blueprints. Because up on the mountain, Moses was given blueprints of what the temple was like in heaven. And so he was to build the tabernacle. The writer of the Hebrews echoes this truth according to the temple in heaven. So as we work through the revelation, we're going to see all this temple furniture. And of course, there's an altar called the brazen altar. And four times, for instance, in Leviticus uh, chapter 4, we're told the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering And all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. And in the Old Testament imagery in the 17th chapter, God reminds them that the blood is symbolic of life, that the life is in the blood. And therefore, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so these martyred saints have identified with the altar, symbolic of the blood that ultimately was cast there on Golgotha when Jesus gave his lifeblood for us. And they are martyred for their faith. Notice here, they're called souls. Now, the word is suke. And sometimes when people hear the word soul, they immediately think of some spirit floating around in heaven. But the word suke, soul, can also refer to a person himself. Some words in Greek, Hebrew, and in English can mean only one thing in every context. Other words take on a different meaning depending on how they are used. For instance, when I use the word trunk 
Am I referring to what's in front of an elephant? What's over a sailor's uh, shoulder? Uh, what's behind a car? Or what's at the base of the tree? It all depends on the context. And so when you see the word soul, very often it just refers to a person's life. For instance, in Revelation 12 and verse 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because the, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their suke, their life, even when faced with death. But without knowing any Greek, you could figure that out from the context because the fact is they are given white robes according to Revelation 6 in verse 11, which means they have some sort of temporary intermediate body. Remember, the resurrection of those who died during the seven-year period happens with all of the Old Testament saints. At the rapture, the church is raised. The 70th week is dealing largely with Israel and Gentiles who have never before heard the gospel in clarity and in power. And they are raised, according to Daniel 12, at the end of the seven year. We're going to look, before we're done with Revelation, I'll give you a chart on all the resurrections that are recorded in Scripture. And they were given to each one of them a white robe. Well, a robe signifies you have to have something to hang on it. So they have some sort of an intermediate body. And so if you buried a loved one, their body is asleep in the grave. Not their soul, only their body. They are still awaiting for the body to be raised. When the Lord will come from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. He will bring back with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep in Christ because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But when you die, if you died this afternoon and you've got loved ones who went on before you, when you see them, you will immediately recognize them, though they are not in their final uh, resurrection body, just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, there are some who would say that these martyred saints represent all of the people throughout all of time during the entire church age because they don't want a literal seven-year tribulation period. Uh, they, 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 they're amillennial. The Messiah is not going to come. He's not going to keep his promises to Israel because the church is the new Israel and on and on it goes. And listen, that interpretation does not fit the context. These people who are given white robes, come out of the great tribulation. These are not church saints. These are tribulation saints who have been martyred. And notice, and because of the testimony which they maintained, they were giving these white robes. What a marvelous truth. The testimony. You know the word testimony. We've highlighted it before you before. It's the word maturia. You can hear our word martyr in it. These were martyrs. That was their testimony. We're going to stand up for Jesus, even if it costs us our life. And the Bible says they maintained this testimony. They held on to this testimony, even in the face of death. Now, here's a chart that might help you to, again, put the order of these things. Jesus in Matthew 24 speaks of the birth pangs. Then he speaks of an event in the middle of the 70th week as Daniel places it dead center called the abomination of desolation, which starts the second half of the tribulation ending with the second coming of Christ. And what you discover here in Revelation is the events that we're going to study in these seal, trumpet, and bold judgments perfectly 
parallel what Jesus teaches. There's some added details that he doesn't give on the Mount of uh, Olivet, but it perfectly parallels what he says in regards to those events. So think about where we've been so far. Uh, for instance, we saw the white horse of deception. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. So after the church is raptured and the door in heaven is opened up, there will be many false messiahs and the epitome of all false messiahs will be the Antichrist himself. So the force first horseman represents that man of great spiritual deception. Then Jesus said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. And so the wars and rumors of wars that Jesus speaks of pictures the red horse of war. Again, a perfect parallel. Then the Lord moves to the next trauma, the third birth pang. That is the horror of famine. He said, and in various places, there will be famine. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And so the black horse of famine comes and the hunger that he brings. Then the fourth horseman, the ashen horse, the pale horse comes. And he brings pestilence and death. Again, this corresponds to what Jesus said. For instance, in Luke, he said, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famine. And then in relation to the fifth seal, Jesus said this, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Remember, these saints, slaughtered, persecuted, who are identified with the altar and all that it pictured in the Old Testament concerning Yeshua, Jesus. They maintain the testimony. And that's what Jesus said people will do during this time, those who know him. They will maintain their testimony. They will not stop. If you were threatened with death in this service and they said, deny Christ, would you? Not if you're a real Christian. You would allow them to take your life if you couldn't defend it. A true Christian will never renounce Christ. Jesus said, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Understand, you're not saved by perseverance. Salvation is by grace. But if you are saved, you will persevere. You will continue to the end. John put it in these words. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. He's saying, look, there's people who come into the church, they give a testimony. I am a follower of Jesus. And John says, they really are not these false teachers that he addresses in that chapter because they ended up forsaking the body of Christ. They never persevered because they never had genuine salvation. Now listen, the persecution today, as bad as it is, 
doesn't even begin to compare to what is coming with these birth pangs. Now, these are birth pangs that begin to happen after the church is raptured. These are all birth pangs in the first half of the tribulation. Even the post-tribulationist has to recognize that. So when Hal Lindsey writes a book and he says, okay, let me tell you the number of earthquakes we had this year and this year and this year. Here's the number of families. Oh, we're in the birth pangs. We're in the first half of what Jesus is describing. Oh, no, we're not. The birth pangs unfold during the first three and a half years. You say, well, is there any significance to the growing persecution, to the growing turmoil in the world, to the days of Lot, the growing homosexual spirit, to the days of Noah, the gross immorality that is hitting our nation and our world like a tidal wave? Yes, there is. It tells you the woman is pregnant. It tells you the water is getting close to break because she's near full term. And when the rapture happens, then the birth pangs come. So that's the cost of their testimony. Secondly, notice the prayer in their hearts, the prayer in their hearts. Verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Again, since their murderers are still alive on the earth, these martyrs are from the tribulation period. And they cry out with a loud voice. By the way, the fact that they are crying out with a loud voice in heaven immediately reveals two errors that are taught in our day. One error is that of soul sleep. Our dear Seventh-day Adventist friends teach it. They say when you die, body, soul, and spirit live in the grave, that you are not consciously aware of anything until Jesus raises you up. And what they confuse is when God speaks of sleep, it's always in reference to the body, but never in reference to the person in that body, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. These are people who died during the tribulation, and they are very conscious in heaven, crying out to the Lord. Secondly, their testimony of crying out to the Lord also dismantles the false doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory has no biblical basis. Now, one of our dear brothers who just came back from the Philippines in our Graniteville campus, thank you, Brother Carl, for this uh, article. Um, you know, if you've been to the Philippines, just like Billy Graham years ago would have uh, a column in virtually every paper across America, Roman Catholic priests all across the Philippines have their little columns because you're either evangelical and God is doing a great work in the Philippines right now, or you're Catholic. And so priests will often write in the newspaper. And so this priest just came out November 2nd. The belief in purgatory, which is specifically a Catholic teaching included in the Catholic creed, says that those who die in friendship and grace with God, but who are not perfectly purified, are detained and purified there in purgatory. Then he goes on to say that this has strong biblical support, and he quotes Second Maccabees chapter 12. Well, I hate to tell him, but Second Maccabees is not in our Bible, and it shouldn't be in theirs either. Jesus and the apostles never, ever, ever quote the Intertestament books. Why? Because while they are historical and helpful, maybe, for what took place during those 400 years, neither Jew nor the early church have ever seen them as part of the canon of Scripture. Not to mention, they repeatedly contradict what God did give in His 66 
books of the Bible. God teaches when you die, you go to heaven. Now, if you want to listen to man, you can come up with four conclusions of what happens when you die. You can say you go to heaven, hell, purgatory. By the way, purgatory is a logical doctrine in Catholicism because if works help to save you, if Jesus didn't completely pay for your sin, if his shout from the cross to tell us die, it's finished, paid in full, is not really true, and you have to help God because Jesus didn't do enough, then purgatory is logical. You have to suffer and be purified in the pains of purgatory. But if grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone is true, then the moment you die, you go to heaven. So you can believe man and say heaven, hell, purgatory, or annihilationism. Those annihilationists say when you die, you just get dropped in the grave, and that is it, and all consciousness ceases. Now, a man can say that. He can suppress what he knows to be true because God wrote eternity into his heart, or he can believe the Scripture. Listen, there's only two choices. You either die and go to heaven, or you die and go to Hades, which ultimately becomes the lake of fire, Gehenna, hell. And they cried out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain? Now, while persecution is bad in this day, it's nothing compared to what is going to happen. I went to Yad Vashem, been there many times. It's the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And the last time I went, I don't know why I hadn't seen it before, but I stopped. I mean, there's so much to see and stopped at one of the exhibits of Adolf Ekman. He was one of Hitler's men who was responsible for the death of more Jewish people, five of the six million people. And he wrote these words. I wrote them down. I shall leap in my grave for the thought that I have five million lives on my conscience is to me a source of inordinate satisfaction. He loves the fact that he took five million lives. Well, you can take that man's attitude and multiply it 10,000 times 10,000 times, and that will be the attitude of unbelievers hunting down and murdering and butchering tribulation saints. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, you read that, maybe you're asking, listen, a Christian, even those who are martyred like Stephen, shouldn't they be praying, Father, forgive them? Is that not what Jesus did? Father, forgive them. I have no doubt that when these saints were on earth, they took Jesus' advice, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but they're not on earth anymore. These are saints who are in heaven, and they're asking a question, and the question is not knowing God's exact schedule and what he's going to do. This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. And so you've heard of the imprecatory psalms. Uh, the, the verb imprecate means to, to call down judgment or calamity. And I know some people say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian. Now, I love C.S. Lewis, and I took a whole course on him in college with Peter Kraft, who's considered one of the leading experts in the world on C.S. Lewis. And I read a ton of books by him. 
but he said a lot of stupid things. And especially in reference to the imprecatory Psalms. I use his book, Mere Christianity. He was an incredibly bright man, and God certainly has used his book to get people to think about who Jesus really is. But I think he remained a baby Christian in light of some of the incredibly stupid things he said. And I won't list them all this morning. But for instance, in reference to the imprecatory Psalms and his reflections on the Psalms, he calls them terrible, contemptible, devilish, profoundly wrong, and sinful prayers. No, they are not. They are part of the Word of God. God inspired them. And they express a legitimate truth. We are commanded in Ephesians 4, as Paul quotes the prophet Hosea, be angry, but do not sin. If someone tried to seduce your little girl or give your children drugs, there would probably rise up in you a moral, righteous anger, a moral outrage. That's what these saints in heaven are feeling. God's people are being butchered, beheaded by the millions. And they're asking God, how long? How long? This is not a prayer for personal revenge. It's a prayer for the vindication of who God is, that he is holy and true. In one sense, we pray it every time we say the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because with that petition comes the wrath of God Almighty, Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians said, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. They're under all this turmoil and persecution. And Paul says, look, they're going to get their day. It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. That's the essence of eternal life. To those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, what will happen? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, I know there are certain so-called pastors today who take great pleasure and they boast in the fact that then when they preach, they never mention hell and certainly not flames. But listen, the message that we preach is a message that both wins and it warns. And we cannot preach part of the truth. If you preach part of the truth, it becomes an untruth. We're to preach the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Here are God's martyrs in heaven. They are acknowledging, God, you are holy and true. Listen, King David sang it. The apostle Paul promised it. The tribulation saints here pray for it. And I know while we are living in a day of horror, it is going to get much, much worse. And God's saints are crying out. And by the way, while we're here, sometimes Christians say, well, when you get to heaven, you'll get all your questions answered. No, you will not. These are people who are in heaven. They're asking a question. How long, oh Lord? You don't automatically know everything when you get to heaven. Only God is omniscient. We will be learning throughout all of eternity. But notice, in addition to the cost of their testimony and the prayer in their hearts, consider the salvation from their God, the salvation that comes from God. Verse 11, and there was given 
to each of them a white robe. They are given white robes. They don't earn these robes. These robes are an expression of God's grace for the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus who gives us this grace. But I want to tell you, unless you have a white robe, unless you've received the grace of God, unless you have believed on the Lord Jesus alone to save you, you won't be meeting God in heaven. Jesus told in the parable of the wedding feast, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to them, friend, how did you come in here without the wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You need a robe and it can only be given to you. You'll never earn it. And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. They're told just to wait, just to rest. God's timing is perfect. Rest for a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. That represents the omniscience of God and it represents the care of God. God is looking at each number and when the final martyr's life is taken, Jesus will be told, go finish it up. He will come at that point to rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. God sees everything that is happening in your life. Someone asked me, where was God two Sundays ago when that gunman came in and took out all those believers who went from an earthly sanctuary immediately into a heavenly one? He was in the same place when he watched his son at Golgotha. He sees everything that is happening. The very hairs in your head are numbers, and the days that were written in his book, even before there was yet one, were all recorded. Listen, this nonsense of a prosperity gospel, that you're going to be healthy and wealthy and die peacefully if you have enough faith, doesn't even begin to match what the Word of God says. Now, I'm almost done. You may not think I am. You say you're only halfway through the outline. Stay with me. We now move from the world of the tribulation saints in heaven to the world of the tribulation sinners on earth. And so John once again reveals three truths, not only about God's saints, but now of these unrepentant sinners. First, we learn what the tribulation sinners see. We learn what they see here in verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Now, I told you when we began chapters 4 through 18 that there are some who are called preterists from the Greek word, uh, from the Latin word preter, that means past. And they say everything in the Revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, unless they're full preterists and they're really wacky, uh, was all fulfilled before 70 AD. That is a faulty hermeneutic. Now, I love Hank Hanegraaff and R.C. Sproul, but they're wrong. They do a great injustice to the Word of God when they say this is history. It is a faulty hermeneutic. It, 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 it ignores the plain 
teaching of Scripture, and it obliterates all of those times where Jesus said, watch, look, be ready. And ultimately, as I will show you before we are done, it fosters the spirit of anti-Semitism. Now, I don't think some of those guys like Luther and Calvin, and I have a love-hate relationship with them, and we're going to read some things about Luther and Calvin that will make your skin crawl concerning what they said of the Jewish people. But it fosters a spirit of anti-Semitism to take the preterist view. Look, I've studied a lot of eschatologies in the 40 plus years I've been a Christian. I have a book back in my library, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. It went out of print in 1989, if you didn't figure that out. But unless there is some reason to take a verse or part of a verse symbolically, then based on what God gave us within the Scripture on how to interpret the Scripture, we take it at its plain face, literal value. Not to mention, this cannot be just symbolic because at the end of the chapter, we're going to see the world in absolute mortal terror. And so there are six disturbances that John highlights. Now, to bring you back where we are, here's a chart. Um, remember, we're still in the first three and a half years, the four horsemen, the altar representing those who are identified with Jesus through martyrdom, and then some disturbances in the heavens. Now, we're going to see a number of times some disturbances in the heavens, not to be confused with the final disturbances that happen right before Jesus lands upon the earth. So we're still here in the first half of these three and a half years. Notice first, we are told that there is a great earthquake. A great earthquake comes, mega seismos. Seismos gives us our English word, seismology, the study of earthquakes. This is a big earthquake, a mega earthquake. It's not the big one yet. There's three earthquakes in the Revelation. The real big one is yet to come. Second, we're told the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. It's like the heavens are mourning. God takes no pleasure, Ezekiel said, in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in that. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the sun will be made like black goat's hair, and that shouldn't totally surprise us. It's happened before. When Jesus hung on Golgotha for three hours, at midday, it was like midnight, dark as could be. Third, we're told, and the whole moon became like blood. This is a simile. It didn't become blood. Hos Hema, like blood. Now, a couple of years ago, a book came out, several books came out about the four blood moons. People were asking me, are you going to preach in the four blood moons? And I said, no, it has no relevance. In fact, one family left over that. They thought I was foolish and I needed to warn the people. The only blood moons that are of significance are those that you will find here during the tribulation period. Fourth, verse 13, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Now, the word stars here, the word star, again, takes on meaning and context. We'll see John uses it sometimes of an angel. Are these literal stars that fall to the earth? Can't be, because in Revelation 8 and verse 12, he speaks of the stars that are very much in place in the heavens above. He's using what we call the language of observation. We have a dock in our neighborhood, and sometimes I'll take my wife down there, and we'll 
look at the sunset and I'll hold her hand and I'll say, will you look at that beautiful earth rotation? No, that's not what I say. I say, will you look at that beautiful sunset? Now we know the sun doesn't set. The earth rotates. That's the language of observation. This morning, the weatherman said the sunset will be at 5.21 p.m. Sun doesn't set. This is the language of observation. This is what we often call shooting stars. In fact, the word is aster that can be used in the Bible, in and outside of the Bible, of any lumen body in the sky, even of the sun and of the moon. We see stars shooting across the earth, and we say, that's a falling star. Listen, if a star hit this planet, the planet wouldn't exist. This is the language of observation. Aster, maybe an actual asteroid. In 1908, an asteroid hit Siberia, and it wiped out 700 square miles of forest. This is a star shower like the world's never seen. Some of you know of the famous star shower on November the 13th, 1833, where literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stars were shooting across the sky, and people literally fell to their knees, and they were begging God for mercy. Well, this is a star shower like the world has never seen that's coming. The fifth disturbance, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, don't ask me how that will happen because I don't know. But somehow, as John observes, it's like the shriveling up of paper. He can describe some kind of an effect that's happening in the atmosphere. In six, he says, every mountain and island were moved out of their places, literally. If these are asteroids, these will be God's bunker busters. They will literally move mountains. And if you've ever seen an earthquake, you know what it can do or a volcanic eruption. And people in every respect will lose every sense of security that they might have had. God is sending a message to the world to repent. Secondly, we learn about the tri- what the tribulation sinners say, what they say in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich men and the strong and the slave and the free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, we've seen already that seven is a number repeatedly used in the revelation of completion. And so God gives a seven-fold classification of people. First, the kings of the earth. That would be the heads of states, rulers, presidents, prime ministers. He mentions, secondly, the great men. Those are high-ranking men, like maybe senators in our nation. Third, he mentions the keliarchus, the commanders. Those are leaders of small armies. And even the commanders, even the five-star metal-decorated warriors will cry like children cowering in a cave. The fourth group are the rich, not even the rich in their bunkers that men here are building will be able to hide from God. The fifth group are referred to those who are the strong, the dunatos. These are what we would call the movers and the shakers. Sixth and seventh, the slave and the free, meaning everybody else. Listen, no one will be able to escape. I think it's interesting that God especially highlights five categories of the great because the great think that somehow they can escape God with their money and their power and their prestige. After all, they're the president of the United States or whatever title they may have. But none will escape. And so they say, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. By the way, Jesus 
quoted this verse from Hosea, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and on the hills, cover us. I mean, these earth-shattering events are going to create the biggest prayer meeting in the history of the world, but they won't be praying to Father God, they'll be praying to Mother Nature. They won't be praying to the rock of ages, they'll be praying to the rocks. Fall on us! Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's very revealing. They know the source of what is happening, but their hearts are so obstinate, so hard, so indifferent, because they would not believe, they could not believe, Jesus said, and all they do is rebel, fall on us, even though they know what is happening is coming from heaven. Third, we learn about what the tribulation sinners surmise. It's in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? It's a rhetorical question. Who is able to stand? Absolutely no one can stand against the wrath of the Lamb. Now, we are so accustomed to emphasizing the meekness and the gentleness of Christ that we forget his holiness and his justice. The same Christ who held the children went in and cleaned out the temple. God is holy and God's wrath is an expression of his holy love for what is right and his hatred for what is wrong. You say, how does this apply to me? Let me give three applications as we close. Three timeless lessons I am reminded of from this chapter. Number one, God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice. You know, the book of Revelation dismantles the false doctrine that God is so loving that somehow he'll never judge anybody. Revelation also dismantles what you hear a lot of unsaved people do. They say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, I don't buy him. I only embrace the God of the New Testament as if somehow they are different. They've never read the Bible. The Bible is clear that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love to quote that verse, God is love, but we don't like to quote the verse, God is a consuming fire. We love to quote the verse, the one who believes in the Son has life. But we don't like to quote the second half, the one who refuses to believe the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. Second, I'm reminded that you cannot hide from God. You cannot hide from God. King David spoke of the impossibility of being able to hide from God in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And so he proposes various directions. If I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave and Sheol, behold, you're there. And then he proposes hiding in the darkness, but he says, no, the darkness and the light are like to you. And for David, he finds great comfort in that, that God is always there, that he is always watching from the moment of conception until the time he takes him home. But listen, the lost try to hide they try to hide in their riches. They try to hide in their fame. They try to hide in their titles. But you cannot hide from God Almighty. Man is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Third, I learned from this passage, you will never be able to stand for Christ unless you stand with Christ. Are you ready to be rescued 
from the events that are before us. If you know the Lamb, you have not been destined for the wrath of the Lamb. You've been destined for salvation. And if you do not know the Lamb, you could come back next week and find nobody here if the rapture takes place, or maybe just a few. You say, Pastor, I don't like all this talk about wrath and judgment. In fact, Pastor, I don't like your preaching one bit. I think I'm going to go home and listen to Joel. He makes me feel a whole lot better. (laughs) Listen, you can soften the truth all you want, but you can never, ever change the truth. Who is able to stand? That's the closing words of the sixth seal, and it raises an interesting question. Nahum said in these words, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Asaph said it this way in Psalm 76, you even you are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Listen, apart from a second birth, apart from being born again, you will never stand. Without Jesus, you will do what Adam and Eve did. You will hide. But when they were hiding, God came after them and gave them skins to wear. Uh, The first death in the universe took place. Blood was shed, and God was teaching them without the shedding of blood, ultimately Messiah's blood, there is no forgiveness. Have you found that forgiveness? It's only through the Lamb. You will either meet Him in His grace, or you will meet Him in His wrath. But you will meet Him. None can escape. Holy Father... We thank you today for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Father, so many of us have loved ones that we will see around the Thanksgiving table that are lost. And we didn't share with them last year or the year before or the last 10 years. But they will either meet you in grace or they will meet you in wrath. Help us to take seriously the Great Commission, to warn men to flee the wrath that is to come, to look and to pray for opportunities that you would give us, open doors, as Paul prayed for, opportunities to share the gospel of your Son. I pray today, Father, for someone who's listening wherever they may be, someone who does not have the assurance that heaven is their home, that if they were to take their last breath upon the earth today, that you would take them into your presence. Help them to know, Father, that Jesus didn't die for some or most, but all of their sin, that all of your holy wrath was born out in a substitute such that they can find a way of escape if they will call upon him in faith. Thank you for your promise that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Father, help some dear soul today to forsake saving themselves to say, Lord Jesus, by your death and resurrection, I ask you to save me. And then give them the courage that every true child of God will express to openly, publicly, without shame, to confess you before men. Help someone today, Father, to make that decision. And help us to walk this week in these truths. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.